and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 149. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio, we have a returning guest, Mark Ashen. Hello. Today, you and I are going to be discussing the changing of rooms, by which I mean to say the various psychological, mental, personal, and other effects that changes in different rooms can have on our perceptions. And as a starting point, I would actually like to know if there's a room in your life that has remained more or less stable and does not change in appearance or maybe even sound and smell and a general atmosphere that you feel is reliable in a way. The thing that instantly came to my mind is a room that's changed a lot over my lifetime, which is the room in my home that I have spent the most time in. But what's odd about that is that I changed rooms when I was eight or nine years old to be in the room that I'm living in now because we totally remodeled my home. The entire structure and size of our house changed, the detail, and I think we added a whole new section to the top story. So even what I'm about to describe about my room is wrong, but what's remained pretty much consistent is it's lime green. The walls are an almost oppressive lime green color that I've come to love, but every single time anyone enters my room, they go, whoa, this is green. And it's very unique and has made me think of beige or taupe walls as very kind of interesting and unique for me because I'm used to growing up in a room that is very vibrant and very, very green. Also, the room is unique because the contours of the ceiling are jutting into it and the roof. So it looks almost sculptural when you look up at the ceiling. But at the same time, paintings have changed. My bed has changed. Well, since it was the first that came to mind, can I ask if there are still aspects, even in your memory, that remain stable or reliable for you? I suppose the reason it's the first thing that came to my mind is because until I went to college, it was the thing I saw every single day. And I I saw my living room and my dining room every single day as well. But those weren't really my spaces. Those were communal spaces. And my bedroom was mine. I mean, I didn't pay for the house, but I painted it with my color that I wanted. And I put my posters up. And those posters changed depending on who I was. And my bed changed. And the lime green walls became more sun damaged over the years. But I still walk in there and it still kind of smells the same. And it smells like it has smelled every single day when I was a teenager or when I was 10 years old. I suppose that that's why it's stable. And I'm really fascinated by your description of ownership, because I think that's key in our discussion of changing of rooms and how rooms affect us in a very profound way. For example, I can remember three of my rooms in three different houses in my childhood adolescent period with which I have certain attachments in my mind, because as you said, I saw them every day. And I think the idea of ownership is curious, not only in that our parents respectively owned these houses, but that in the idea of ownership, I think many of us think of objects, things that we can carry, pick up, in many cases like our phones or other small technology, that which we can put in our pockets. I own my keys or my wallet, and that is signified by the fact that I can carry it with me. But a room is always necessarily larger than a person. And so it's curious to me to think about how I would show ownership of a room and what immediately comes to mind is repetitive entry and occupation in a somewhat political sense. The fact that my body occupies that space very frequently and in the case of bedrooms for at least eight hours at a time when I'm going to bed means that I do own a portion of or the entirety of that room. 
And I'm intrigued by your answer because for me, the most stable room that I can imagine is not a childhood bedroom nor my bedroom back at college, but actually the rehearsal space for my improv troupe throughout college. Because though my bedrooms would shift from year to year as I moved to different dorms or apartments, we always rehearsed in the same space, which for Kenyan students was Philo in Ascension Hall. And that means nothing to people who have never gone to that college, but that space did feel familiar. And it was a classroom by day during the week, but on weeknights we would use it to rehearse for improv. It had dark wooden walls and chairs that had a very similar color and very ornate gothic style architecture and decorations. And to be clear, I have never owned that room, nor will I ever, because I was a student at that college. And if anything, I owned it with the fellow members of the improv troupe every night when we occupied that space. But for me, what's key, again in our conversation of changing rooms, is the fact that it really never changed. And of the various forms and appearances that that room could have taken on, I only ever really knew two of them one of which was occupied by seven to nine people practicing improv, and the other of which contained upwards of a hundred students all packed in to watch an improv show. And although I know classes were held there, I never witnessed the room used for that purpose. And I would love to know from you if you've ever encountered a room with which you are familiar in a very unfamiliar use or format or decoration or aesthetic and what that experience was like for you. When you were talking about Philo, what immediately went into my mind is the fact that a group of students and I did a play in that room that your improv group practiced in. It was a play called Dinner, which was, long story short, based on a very, very rich couple who were throwing a dinner party for their friends, but the dinner party inevitably creates chaos and discord and surreal experiences. And one of those experiences involved the hostess of the party bringing in live lobsters and putting them on our characters' plates and forcing us to choose whether we were going to kill them and eat them or let them live and put them in a pond. And our director decided to use real live lobsters. And the thing about live lobsters is live lobsters smell awful, especially when they're in the process of slowly dying like our lobsters were. And you came to see the play but you had improv rehearsal right afterwards. So you hung around while we were deconstructing the set and doing all of these things. And when your improv people came, everyone started freaking out about the smell and how awful it smelled and saying we should rehearse somewhere else. We need to go somewhere else. We can't rehearse here. And it was a small little thing, but you walked into a room that you thought you owned and there was something off about it. There was something altered about it. We had taken it and used it for our own purposes. And then kind of forced you guys to leave for the sake of your nostrils. I'm so glad that you brought that up. I can't believe I'd forgotten about that because one, the play was very impressive. And for those listening, I encourage you to look up the script. It's a very, very interesting play. But ultimately, related to that story, we did choose to improvise in that room that night when we could have easily chosen another. And I think it comes back to this perception of ownership and this idea that we are in some way tied to the rooms that we occupy in our lives and even if the room smells differently or doesn't look quite as pretty as it once did, on some level, it is still yours. And I think there's something very comforting in ownership and familiarity, which led me to say, let's open a few windows, but suffer through this because this is the room that we use. And I remember while I was watching that play, not only being impressed by the performances of you and the others, but by seeing the space in a new way. 
And I think it's similar to a parent who maybe hasn't seen a child for a year or more during a trip abroad, perhaps, and having them come back and recognizing how much has changed and hearing about their new stories and really perceiving great change. And I was so proud in a way to see that the room that I had come to love over my four years at college was being utilized in a great way. And I remember how well I felt it fit that play and also how cool it was to see a space in which the other improvisers and I will always pantomime space or objects and seeing now a curtain and the table used as a dinner table and candles used as decorations and how exciting all of that was. So I'm glad that you brought that example up. Also, our director had to go into that room and see that the beautiful stained glass and the gothic architecture and the wooden beams and the sculpturing that is being woven into the molding fit perfectly with the fact that the characters in this play are rich and affluent, but that they're completely hollow and alone and had to go into this room, which is being used for all of these other things and see, oh, it could be used for these purposes or it could be used in this way or I've never thought about it like this and kind of in that way and that kind of repurposing brought it and made it her own and owned it for herself in a way that no one had ever thought to own it before. Going back to your earlier question about a room that meant something to me that I've seen in a new light. The first time I recorded a podcast with you, Kip, I walked into your apartment on campus and realized that it was the apartment of an ex-girlfriend of mine. And then I walked into your room and I realized, oh, this is her room. And you had different posters up and you had an entirely different bed and desk layout and you were living in the room by yourself and my ex-girlfriend had a roommate, but I still had a wave of memories just come over me being like, wow, this was a room that someone else owned and was completely different, but at the same time is the same. And I felt like was a big part of my freshman year at Kenyon. And it was interesting. It didn't bring me to my knees necessarily, but it was powerful to think, wow, This is both the exact same place and an entirely different room that stands by itself. And I'm going to record a podcast in it rather than watch a movie or kiss somebody. And how the entire purpose and feeling and decor of the room was incredibly different. The moment I walked into this room, I had a very, very personal five minutes of self-reflection that I didn't expect to have walking in here because I thought it was just a random apartment because I'd never been in here since the year I dated her. And she was a very important part of my life. So a room which was completely devoid of her that has posters of cities and trees that I'd never seen before and objects and lamps and recording equipment that I would never have associated with the room. The fact that it was just the room itself had an incredible effect on me because I felt like I owned the room in a certain extent. When you spend an entire year or so in a room and then it changes out of nowhere and you didn't even realize that it would change. It made me think, oh, the room that I'm living in now is going to be occupied by somebody next year, and the memories I have of it are going to completely almost disappear. In the apartment that I'm living in now, we have a phone that its receiver is a little bit broken, so whenever you breeze by it, it will fall down and create a very loud crash on the ground, and we've named the phone Mr. Rodrigo. We created this whole story about how Mr. Rodrigo came to be so clumsy, But if we were to go back to that apartment next year, different people are going to be living there. They don't know that Mr. Rodrigo is named Mr. Rodrigo. And they also don't know the tons of amazing moments and also not so amazing moments we've had in that apartment. And so it almost makes me shy away from the idea of going back to old places that have changed and I have all these memories of. But also in some ways, it's sort of healthy to come back to these rooms and realize they're going to change. They're going to evolve into something different. And that's not necessarily bad. 
And the funny coincidence there is that I was and still am close with that ex-girlfriend. And so she told me towards the end of her senior year about a tradition in that room that she and her roommate had started of writing on the inside of the closet and making a small note that they had in fact lived there. And it's very hard to see if you don't know what to look for. But she said that before graduating, I should sign my name and inform the next occupants to do the same. And so in a way, she passed the room on to me in a very ceremonious and friendly way because we were and still are friends. And I find it interesting that it encapsulated something for you that was very different. It was your freshman year. It was my junior year. And I had never spent any time in this room. And you had spent far more. And so if nothing else, I think college is a very curious example of how rooms can change because many of us shift around so frequently. And for those who go abroad, they might occupy a room for less time than others, or they might be shifting around within a house because of any number of circumstances. And also looking at our college as a case study of sorts, new buildings are being renovated and constructed relatively frequently. And so new classes, the class of 2021, the class of 2025, might occupy buildings that you and I had never seen, but were built on spaces where you and I walked every day, crossing campus or sitting on a certain lawn, which I find really curious because the feeling of a new room, something that's never been occupied and is so pristine and geometrically perfect in some ways, is very intriguing. I feel like there's more personality in certain rooms that are older, that have dents and watermarks and other signs of use. Because if nothing else, I find it very comforting to know that someone else has lived in a space where I might live. But I also recognize that there are two sides to that coin, and many of us like to have spaces that are just ours. But I've been thinking in preparation for this conversation about certain spaces, unlike one's personal room, that have very specific uses and often public uses. For example, our dining hall at school or our performance hall. And in the case of both, although I enjoy them when they are packed with people in anticipation of a concert or during a busy lunch hour, I've also really enjoyed private moments in those rooms, either with another person just talking or strolling about by myself, because it's nice to see these somewhat hollow skeletons of these rooms that are meant for such large occupations of people, and to recognize the little details and the expansive space and the peaceful atmosphere to a usually chaotic or noisy environment. And I'd love to know what you think about those spaces, especially since you, as a fellow student, shared many of these spaces with me. Your question makes me think of our student theater that we have here on campus and how by the nature of theater being ever-changing is that a new set is being constructed in our theater every few months or so. That means that every few months there's an entirely different feel and function and ownership of this whole big theater. It goes from having grass and being constructed of stone and meant to be danced upon by a Greek chorus to being an apartment in the 1960s with wallpaper and dents and milk cartons and things like that in the course of a winter break or so. That space inherently is founded upon change and the purpose of it being a capsule for any specific show that's going on. But at the same time, I have been in classrooms with different classes. And those are also kind of capsules for different experiences and conversations and discussions being had. I've had classes in 
one specific room, one of which I hated and one of which I loved. And it's interesting that I associate that room with the most boring mornings I've ever had and the most lively discussions about Shakespeare that I still think about. And specifically touching on the theater or any environments that are meant for constant change, do you think that leaves them devoid of a certain quality? Or do you think in some way it makes them more versatile and more meaningful for the variety of rooms and spaces that they can become? Well, both. They have to be inherently bare and multipurpose at the same time. They're versatile in that anything can go inside of them. A theater that can only put on a certain kind of production is kind of inherently problematic. That's why a lot of outdoor theater is not really tailored to specific shows. So I think that theaters have to be inherently bare and devoid of character to a certain extent, but at the same time, that lack of character leads to designers and directors and actors being able to themselves create upon a blank canvas. And if I were to actually rephrase my earlier question regarding performance halls or our dining hall or any similarly crowded or typically busy space, in the bedrooms that you and I have described, They are loosely defined by visual and inanimate decorations, whereas the larger rooms that I've mentioned are, to an extent, decorated by the people that inhabit or temporarily occupy them. And I would really like to know what you think about this idea of rooms being decorated by people and what that says about how we function in relationship to these rooms. I've been in rooms that are meant for lots of people when no one's there, and I always feel odd. I always feel very creeped out to a certain extent because I feel like it's too calm and too serene for the purposes it's intended for. Our dining hall, when it's completely empty, I feel the silence is oppressive. To be fair, I am an extroverted human being, so maybe that's just how I respond to a lack of stimuli. But when a dining hall or a concert venue or a stadium is packed with people, I feel like that's almost the height of its power and purpose is with those people. Those rooms would not have been constructed if it were not for the people within them that are screaming their heads off or clapping or just talking. To the same extent, when you're walking into a cafe with no one there, you feel a little bit odd because you think, oh, maybe there's something wrong about this cafe. Why is no one in here? Why is no one spending their time drinking coffee? The purpose of a cafe is for people. I have friends who have been in places like that that are quiet and calm and serene and feel at peace. And I almost always personally feel very, almost like the giant room is claustrophobic. We've been talking a lot about rooms, but this conversation about spaces changing has made me think a lot about my hometown. I'm from DC and the rapid rate of gentrification there is almost overwhelming. There's a specific street called U Street that used to be the center of African-American culture within DC. And DC is a very historically black city. But in the last 10 years or so, new restaurants have been put up there, new bars, new shopping centers, and it's become this very, very almost pricey, expensive neighborhood. And a lot of black people have been pushed out of that historical space. And while we were talking about this specific place, Kenyon College, that we feel changes inherent in, but almost is somewhat comforting, I'd love to know your thoughts about places like U Street or other places that change is seen as inherently problematic or oppressive either on a macro or micro scale. Well, actually, to tie it back to rooms, I wanted to bring up a point regarding cleaning and decorating, because I think the key there in spring cleaning or in choosing to paint a room lime green, even if visitors might find it strange, is that the individual or occupant of that room usually has agency. And I think agency is key in any changing of space. 
those who have immigrated and managed to change that space, I would hope and presume feel okay with the change because they are the agents of change. And often those who are affected, whether it's the African-American community in D.C. or in certain cases, native species in certain regions that have been pushed out by invasive species, there's a lack of control, which is very problematic and heartbreaking to see. And I feel like if nothing else as people, we should be able to talk about and more adequately and fairly legislate who can or cannot move into certain spaces and change them. And also, as I think this conversation has illuminated, people have very clear attachments to space and their history. You had a very powerful reaction to the room in which we recorded because it had a sentimental value for you. And I think people should respect those attachments to space. And I don't know how I would go about that on a larger political scale, but I do believe that one of the first steps involves conversation and genuine dialogue about what a space means. And honestly, that which you cannot simply transport or put elsewhere, a certain essence to a space that belongs to it. But also historically, people have fought over spaces for centuries. Whether it's because of oil or it's next to a river, it's inherent that different groups are going to fight over spaces. Whichever group of students take my room right now are kicking me out. And that's a very small thing with little consequences, but at the same time, the Gauls kicked the Romans out of Rome. That space changed. Now, to try and argue whether that's a good or a bad thing would be a much longer podcast than this specific one dealing with just specific rooms. But spaces change inevitably. They're always going to be based on the conflicts of human beings over how a space is going to change. I think we can say that we're in a very privileged position where the changes that we're talking about in these specific rooms are fairly small and predictable and that we will have another space with which we can claim ownership and attach our posters and things of that nature, but that so many spaces change on such catastrophic levels that the topic of rooms changing, though it seems like it can just be on this very personal small level, actually has pertinence when you're looking historically and sociologically at the grander scheme of it all. And before we close this episode, what would you like the audience to think about after listening to this discussion? I suppose I'd like to challenge people to think of a place that's entirely static. That's the thing that I was thinking about, whether any room or place or area can be the same for a long period of time, or what we consider as human beings eternal. Places that jumped to my mind were Shakespeare's Globe, even though it burned down. People have tried to keep that looking the same for a very long time, or historical places like that. Mountains seem to be static, even though they change. We know scientifically that they go up and down a little bit. Whether anything can really be considered static, and if so, how? All of which I think is worth consideration. I'd really love to know how our audience feels about proactive and intentional change, because as people, we are, to a degree, in control of certain levels of change, especially with smaller spaces. And I would also love to know what people think about ownership. And where you lack certain economic ability, in what other ways might you be able to claim ownership over a room or a space? And finally, I would also love to know what listeners think about certain larger or more purpose-driven spaces being occupied or utilized in new and fresh ways, and how you feel being in those spaces when they are not being used under normal circumstances. And Mark, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on and discussing this today. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, it's always a pleasure. But as ever, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. So if you listening have any thoughts, opinions, comments, or feedback of any kind, 
please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you and know what this episode made you think about. And if you would like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to as well as reviewing the show, as well as sharing it with someone you think might enjoy it or get something out of it. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.